Let's pray. Father, with great anticipation and hope in the reality and the truth that we know that you tell us that your word will do the things you send it out to accomplish and it will not return to you empty or void. You command us to trust you and so we trust you, we trust your word right now and pray that your spirit would act, uh, that we would seek obedience, that we would seek to honor and glorify you, that we would realize that our greatest joy in life and our greatest satisfaction in life is not the things in this world, even the people in this world, and not even ourselves, but you. Make yourself our greatest treasure, our greatest pleasure, our greatest satisfaction, and fill us with joy as you cause us to obey. It's hard, God, to live the Christian life sometimes, but uh, no one knows that better than Christ himself who lived it perfectly and gave himself up for us, not only for our eternal hope in him, but so that we could walk this earth with his spirit to do the things that he did. And though we fail day after day, our hope remains in Christ. And in our failure, we don't sob and turn on ourselves and condemn ourselves and bear guilt. Instead, we look to grace. And in your grace, you lift us up from the mire of our sin and carry us along a path of righteousness. So that's what we want in life, God. And if we try it on our own, we will fail miserably. So we depend on you throughout the week just as much as we depend on you now. Act on our behalf for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we'll finish our dissection uh, of deaconship and we'll also address this debated question of whether a woman can serve as a deacon or not. And in doing so, what we'll see again, like we talked about last week, is just how important continued faithfulness is to the church and how vital obedience becomes not only to all believers, but specifically to those in this clarified role in the church, such as elders and deacons. By continued faithfulness, the deacon ensures their confidence in their faith to Christ. Do you hear that? That's true of everybody. And uh, I don't know if we'll get that far today, but we might, and we'll see. By continued faithfulness, the deacon and every believer ensures the confidence or assurance in their faith to Christ. And it validates their godliness in Christ through fruit-bearing service to the body of Christ. So that's what we're going to see unfold throughout these verses. We're going to go through verses 10 through 13 today. And Paul says in verse 10, he writes to Timothy, and let them, that's the deacons, let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now in verse 9, we learned that the deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, which essentially means that they must continue in obedience to the gospel that they believe, represent, and proclaim. And it is through that continued obedience that the deacon proves himself 
trustworthy. So the trustworthiness is the continuation. This is a time of testing. Time is needed to reveal whether or not the believer is genuinely saved, growing, and maturing into Christ-likeness. Now a little caveat I'm sure that everybody can be deceived, even really wise, godly elders can be deceived into believing that um, false converts are truly believers. Um, That happens probably all over the world in churches. It's a reality of our existence. It's a reality that comes with the gospel. When you blend sin and truth together, there's a lot of manipulation that takes place. And I would say, in my experience, is most false converts, in fact, this might be even the premise of a false convert, they don't know they're not saved. Now, another caveat to that is that we can't genuinely know where someone stands with God. We don't know what's going on in their heart and mind. Only God knows. So the purpose of knowing who is genuinely saved or not is not a matter of, oh, I can figure out who's not saved and then I can judge them or attack them or whatever. Um, but we'll get to what that means. And when I say that we can't know if someone's genuinely saved or not, that's not completely true. Because there are ways in which Scripture does reveal how you can know. But what I'm trying to avoid is a church culture where we're like, oh, that person's not saved. Oh, they're not saved. Like, we don't want that. If you think that someone isn't saved, your main purpose and intention should be to reach their heart. Should be to, you should have a motivation to encourage them toward the gospel, in the gospel, to believe in Christ, to follow Christ, to obey Christ. Like, the whole point in discovering if someone is a false convert, not genuinely saved, is to lead them to Jesus, not to condemn them, right? And so time is needed. And with time comes this perspective from church leadership that they can evaluate this person who is taking the time to grow. Time is needed to reveal whether or not that person is genuinely saved. And only time will reveal whether their conviction in the gospel was and is genuine regeneration of their heart by the Holy Spirit. And this is why continued obedience is so essential in the church, as it is the fruit-producing obedience over time that conveys genuine salvation. And then we, last week we talked about the distinction. Continued obedience doesn't mean you're perfect every day. right? We talked about that last week. So if you're unsure about that, you can go listen to last week's So, this same time-tested approach is applied to all believers, okay? Except for deacons, it's a requirement to fulfill the role of deacon, and it's a requirement for them to gain assurance of their salvation. So, one of the realities that we find in Scripture is that the assurance of our salvation is revealed in our continuation of obedience, right? And we talked about that last week. We've actually talked about it a lot on Wednesday night because we're in 1 John on Wednesday night, family discipleship. And if we have time, I'll cover that again at the end because I have something new I want to show you. So that's the requirement for a deacon, okay? That they have time to reveal the trustworthiness and in doing so, they also gain assurance of their salvation. For the rest of believers who aren't deacons, it is just a requirement of obedience 
to gain assurance of our salvation. And what we discover is how important obedience is to the assurance of our salvation. So on a practical level, what this does is this ensures that the church isn't letting just anyone serve in the role that requires spiritual maturity and allowing a spiritually immature believer to fill a role that outweighs their character and will only harm their sanctification and create dissension and problems in the church because the deacon will not be able to balance and handle the weight of the role without a certain degree of proven growth and maturity. So when the elders here are determining who can fill the role of deacon, we have to give that person time to see if their faithfulness to Christ is genuine. That means that the elders have to judge. And when you use the word judge, sometimes the world, for sure, but some people in the church get a little like, ooh, judgment, scary, that's a bad word, we don't judge. Jesus says, don't judge. Actually, Jesus says in John 7, 24, judge with right judgment. So there is a way to righteously judge. It's a requirement of church leadership and all believers to some extent, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that we have the spirit who's able to discern good from bad, righteousness from unrighteousness, evil from godliness. And so there's a requirement specifically for church leadership, but also for all believers to some extent, to judge actions and to judge words of their people so to garner a proper perspective of their spiritual well-being. And then the elders will have enough information to act upon their judgments. I mean, if you think about it, in reality, all of us are judging each other all the time subconsciously, right? Well, it'd be extreme to make it clear. If I walked up to Christian after church and I just punched him in the face and didn't say a word to him, you'd all be like, my judgment is that wasn't good. (laughs) Or that was wrong, right? So you wouldn't have to be like, hey, you wouldn't be like, hey, man, it's not my place to say anything. It's not my place to judge. You know, what what would you do? Joel would probably step in and restrain me and throw me to the ground, right? Because Joel would be like, my judgment is that was bad. And I don't need to have a meeting to discuss whether that was wrong or not. I just know that it is. So we're constantly judging each other, okay? Um, we need to kind of get away from this idea that judgment's wrong. There is judgment that is wrong. And when Jesus talks about wrong judgment, the word judge in Scripture uh, can be different Greek words, okay? But in English, we just have this word judge. And ultimately, when Jesus says, don't judge, that word judge, really he's conveying this idea of condemnation. He's saying don't condemn people. We don't have the right to declare that you're going to hell. Like, we're not God, we're not the judge who makes that declaration. But we are able to judge according to Scripture, according to our knowledge of the Word, knowing what righteousness is, knowing what sin is, and evaluating those things, and using, this Holy, uh, using discernment that the Holy Spirit manifests through you to reveal to your mind, and maybe even communicate out loud, that this particular behavior, actions, or words are inappropriate, or ungodly, or unbiblical, or they're sin. <laughs> Or they're righteous and good and holy. So there is a way to righteously judge, which is to evaluate actions, words, in accordance with God's word, and then the elders take action on any sinful behavior or on any righteous behavior as is commanded by God for the elders throughout the New Testament. So it takes time for the deacon to prove himself 
And it takes time for the elders to judge that person's life. So, if you're at all unsure about how myself and Brian, if you're unsure how we think about you, just know that we think about you. Okay? I mean, we, we pray for you. I pray for you constantly, individually. And when I see behavior that I don't think is biblical, I pray specifically for that behavior. And that requires my judgment on you. Still love you the same. Still care for you the same. Still will relate to you. Still fellowship with you. And if it's sin that is a problem, I'll talk to you about it. And you will repent. And we'll grow together. It'll be wonderful and glorious. And um, I just want you to be aware that like it is, you should expect your elders to judge you. And again, clarifying that the word judgment means to evaluate. Not condemn, but evaluate. That's important. Because if I can't do that, then what good am I to you? If I can't evaluate your life, then when you come to me with a problem, say, hey, here's my problem. Um, here, I'm going through this with my wife, and I don't know what to do, and she's saying that, and he's saying, no, 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 no. What do I do, Pastor? I go, not my place. Uh, I have no judgment. You do whatever you think is right. That would be the only conclusion that I could give you in counseling if I, didn't, if I wasn't judging the situation. So it's requirement because judgment is the, pro, is, the, is the activity that happens during the process of the time of testing for all believers in the church and specifically for deacons so that they can prove themselves blameless, as Paul says. Verse 11, Paul says... Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So we're going to address this question of women and their role in relationship to deacons. And I've been kind of prefacing this for a couple of weeks. Now, um, I hope I've made it clear back in chapter 2, our church's stance on women's roles not only in the church, but women's roles in creation, uh, that Paul says women are to be quiet and submissive, that women are not to have in a position of authority over men teaching men in the church. And then we talked about all the beautiful and glorious ways that women can fulfill their female, God-given, created female role in the church and in the home and in the community in such a way that will ultimately bring them their greatest joy. Because a female trying to take a man's role in the church or in the home will not be satisfying. It will, and this is, I'm basing this on two things. The word of God, and what it says, and my experience, I've been a pastor for, I don't even know, like 17 or 18 years or something, and all that time and all the counseling I've done, all the marriages I've interacted with, I can tell you that every time the wife tries to fill her husband's role, the marriage is a disaster. Every time. And that makes sense because Scripture is teaching us about those roles. And right now in the church in America, this stat just blows my mind, okay? Because if... 1 Timothy 2, 11 is true, then this is not allowed. 32% of churches in America have a female pastor. 32%, that's a third. It's a third of the churches in America have a female pastor. And uh, 
When John MacArthur talks about this, he says it is, that is one of the, if not the greatest heretical activity that takes place in the church because once you destroy the head of the church, you destroy the body. I mean, if you're going to kill something, what's the best way to kill it? Cut off its head, right? And so how do you kill a church? Well, you cut off its head. Or you deceive the church by replacing its head with a head that shouldn't be there. And we know that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. But then Jesus, as the chief shepherd of the sheep, calls under-shepherds to serve in his church. And these under-shepherds are called elders. These elders are to rule the church, not rule in a, you know, in a uh, dictative way, but in a submissive, serving, shepherding uh, way that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5. So when the female, when a female takes a role that she is biblically not allowed to take, churches think that what they're doing is good for the people. They, they, they consider it inclusive. We're not going to put any restrictions on people. The problem with not putting any restrictions on people is that God puts restrictions on people. Because once you start saying, well, we don't, we don't want to be exclusive to certain people in certain roles, we want to be inclusive, and when and if that's your motivation, then you can justify that the word is telling you to do whatever you want. And you can read 1 Timothy 2, 11 and say, well, that was the culture back then. Today's different. And excuse the validity and authority of the word and then move on into doing whatever you want and then you become inclusive with no restrictions and with no restrictions comes sin it says in proverbs 18 where there is no prophetic vision my people wander where there in, in prophetic vision he's referring to the word okay when there is no vision for the church when there is no clarity about who we are and where we're going the people wander. When there's no restrictions on the body, people wander. What blows my mind is the illogical outplaying of this kind of mentality in the church where if we don't adhere to the restrictions in Scripture and live by those, what happens is if you were to take that same attitude, that same perspective, that same functionality in the church... And those church leaders who say we're going to make a female a pastor and put her in an elder role, if you take that same principle and you apply it to your family, and that church, those church leaders that decide that that female can be a pastor go home and they shepherd and parent their family that way, well then, who are they to put any restrictions on their children? Who are they to tell their children how to behave? Because if God's word is not authoritative to them in the church, then how is their word authoritative to their children in their home? Because the same reason and the same authority that commands a father to be a certain type of father, like a disciplinarian, leader, shepherd, servant, caretaker of the family, that same command, same authority is the same authority that tells the church that men have a specific role. And Paul's argument in 1 Timothy 2 11 through 15, is not culture, but creation. And Paul goes back to creation and says, the reason men serve in these roles is because that's how God created men, and this is how God created women. It is not about value. It is not about worth. Men aren't better than women. Men are just 
created differently and given a specific role based on how God created them. Women are created differently and they're given a specific role based on how God created them. And when the church is in order, what happens is fruit and joy and satisfaction, pleasure. Christ-likeness grows, sanctification takes place, and it's good. And so... I say all of that to clarify that men and women are different. Now, I don't think that needs clarification in this building today. It obviously needs clarification in our culture and in our world, and I'm definitely not going to get into that. But there's obviously, like, you know, gender confusion in our world, and it's, you know, promoted everywhere, whatever. Um, and, and, the solution is the word of God. The solution is to look at what God says. He created them man and woman. And in doing so, he then orchestrates the church into having specific roles for men and women that fit the way God created them. And so now what we have is a male-led slash elder-led church. Now... In this particular culture, that kind of perspective sounds chauvinistic and misogynistic, right? Like male-dominated, that kind of mentality. And that's not at all our aim. We have no misogynistic or male-dominated agenda. In fact, quite often my wife tells me to do things, and I do it. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, so... Like, my point is that we're not trying to be male-oriented. We're trying to be biblically-oriented. And, and, I, and I preface verse 11 with this so that you can see the contrast that takes place here in verse 11. And Paul says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So, the Greek word for wives here is gyanakos. Okay? I'm telling you the Greek word. I don't normally tell you the Greek word, but I'm telling you the Greek word is gynakos because that is the same Greek word from which we get our English word gynecology, which is the study of woman. And the Greek word gynakos simply means woman. And the only reason to translate this word into the word wife instead of woman is if the context demands that it is clearly referring specifically to the role of wife and not just the general role of woman. Now, to answer the question, can a woman serve as a deacon in the church, this context doesn't seem to indicate any clear reason to specify that this Greek word should mean wife instead of just woman. In fact, in my ESV, it says wife, in the NASB, it says woman. And I'm going to say this just once, so this is your one chance. The NASB is a better translation in terms of, <laughs> in terms of formality, but the ESV is an eighth grade reading level, so I like it. Anyways, <laughs> and, and, and eighth grade reading level doesn't mean it's, not, it's a bad translation. It is an incredibly accurate translation. So that's why I like it. So to kind of answer the question, it seems that if, if the Greek word here really means woman, not wife, so not the wife of the male deacon, 
but the woman who is a deacon, then women can serve as, as deaconesses, is what we'd call them. So to kind of bolster up this argument, you've got the role of elder that Paul just got done explaining. This is perhaps probably one of the best arguments for why this word should be woman and women can serve as deacons. Because since the role of elder is a higher position with stricter requirements, it wouldn't make sense that Paul would demand that the deacon's wife hold to a standard that not even the elder's wife needs to hold. And since Paul doesn't make any mention about the elder's wives meeting or needing to meet any requirement, it seems clear that Paul also isn't giving a deacon's wife any requirements. So, meaning the proper translation of the word wives should be women, and Paul is teaching that women can be deacons serving the church with the manifestation of the Spirit's gifts to ensure that all people, men, women, and children, are all taken care of and served properly according to the needs of the church. So that is our stance at Grace Church, that, can, that, that women can be deacons or deaconesses as some call them. And also, to, to return to uh, this idea of churches being misogynistic, um, we as a church, you know, when we went through 1 Timothy 2, walked through those realities and took a firm stance on male and female roles. Now, that's not uncommon. There are so many churches, uh, whether in this area or all over the nation and all over the world, that hold to the biblical view, uh, which we would call uh, complementarianism, this idea of male and female roles, male authority and female submission in the home and in the church, and ultimately from creation in the world and in the communities. Um, but we don't get to dictate necessarily what happens in the world and in the communities, but we do get to determine what happens in the home and in our church. And so we want to be biblical in our roles, male and female roles in the church. And when you take hard stances on male authority in the church in a culture that is gender-bending, essentially, you come off, like I said before, misogynistic. And, and the reason that I bring this up again is just to clarify that our objective is, and you would think that a church like ours, with a pastor like me, who holds to the male authority in the church and in the home, would try to find a way to make deacons only men. I can't do that. Because I have no agenda to bring to the Word, and any presupposition I have about men and women and roles and things, I also can't bring to the Word. The only thing I can do is open the Bible, read it, determine what God is telling us, and function according to the truth of His Word. So evidence that churches that have male authority and eldership and allow women to be deaconesses, those kinds of churches where they don't allow women to be elders but they do allow women to be deacons, what that might indicate and usually does indicate is that that church doesn't have an agenda or presupposition about men and women. It has a desire and one desire only to adhere to the word of God. Amen. So... These deaconesses must be, Paul says, dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. These characteristics, these qualifications for the female are not any different than they are for the male. He makes the, essentially the same requirements for the male deacons that, back in verse 8, but now he uses just a couple different words, but they're essentially the same requirement. 
She must be dignified, just like the, the male deacon must be dignified, taking her role seriously enough to ensure that the body's needs are met and thus withstanding any accusation that they are acting with indignity. And so, dignity is not only a behavior, but it is a response from others who recognize the dignity for which, uh, with which she behaves. She also must not be a slanderer, just as he must not be a slanderer. Um, and that's just like in verse 8, when Paul says that he must not be double-tongued. The Greek word for slanderer is diabolos, from which we get our English word diabolical. So again, I'm telling you the Greek word because you can see the relationship between the Greek word and the English word. Diabolos is where we get the English word diabolical, and it comes from the same root word that means Satan slash devil. And the meaning of the word diabolos is outrageously wicked and devilish. So, it would make sense <laughs> that not only should a deacon not be a slanderer, but none of us should be. You ever hear about people talking trash about you behind your back and making up rumors and saying stuff? That is, biblically, outrageously wicked and devilish. And Paul would identify that with the same word that he would name Satan. So that should clarify the severity of how we use our tongue. And if you're not sure about how important your tongue is, refer to James 3, read that chapter today, and you'll realize, wow, how we use our tongue is massively important. And that's not the only place in Scripture where our words are important. You realize that Jesus also tells us that we will be, not Jesus, think Paul, tells us that we will be judged for, we'll have to give an account for every careless word we speak. That's not unbelievers being judged for other words. That's everybody being held accountable for every careless word they speak. What you say with your mouth matters. Slander is lying. Slander is a lie. You're lying. If you're slandering, you're lying. It's usually behind someone else's back and you're spreading a false rumor. That happens a lot. And Jesus said in John 8, 44, that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. So to lie by slander is to act according to your old father, Satan, because Jesus says there in John 8 that you are of your father, the devil. He's talking to the Pharisees. Anyone who doesn't have Christ doesn't know the father. So God the father is not your father if you don't have Christ. If you don't have Christ, then Jesus is saying Satan's your father. That's before we had Christ. We didn't know Satan was our father, but we were lied to and deceived, and we were lying and dece deceiving ourselves because Satan is a liar and he was deceiving us, and he was like, essentially, as Jesus says, our father. And so, as believers, we shouldn't act according to our old father, Satan. We can now and should act according to our new father, God, in accordance with the character of God's son, Jesus, whom is truth. He says, I am the truth. So we should only speak truth. He goes on, being sober-minded. Being sober-minded is like verse 8 for the men, not be addicted to much wine. The aim of the male deacon is not only that he's just not a drunk, but ultimately what 
the point that Paul wants and the point that Paul is making with the, with the male deacons in terms of their relationship to wine and, the, the, and what he's saying now about the female deacon being sober-minded is that the ultimate goal is to think clearly or to be led by the Spirit. That is, to be sober-minded. So when Paul says this about women, he just gets to the point. It's not about alcohol. It's about having a sober mind that enables you to be prudent and wise, to know your role, to know how to serve, to make yourself available sacrificially at any moment to serve the needs of the body of Christ. That's the role of a deacon, is to be a drop of the hat, turn your life around on a dime, sacrificially serving the body of Christ. You got your golf clubs ready, you put them in the back of your trunk, you're driving to the golf course, and you know, Susie calls you, hey, I need my help at my house. I don't know, I haven't thought through this analogy. <laughs> I need help, can you come help me right now? You call the golf course, say, gotta cancel, I'm not gonna make it, I'm going to Susie's or Sally or whoever's name I just used. And, and you go, I mean, like sacrificially dropping what you have going on in your life. Now, obviously, that sacrifice needs to be weighed with wisdom as well. Um, you know, so, so I'm not just saying constantly always dropping everything because there are some things that are maybe more important and there are other solutions. But not to get into hypotheticals, the point is the attitude, the mind, the heart, the perspective of a sacrificial servant that's willing to give up whatever they need to give up to serve other people. That's what a deacon should be, automatically. They shouldn't have to be told that. They shouldn't have to be led into that. They should, they should become deacons knowing that. And if there is anything missing that Paul mentions in regards to the requirements for deacons or for female deacons, he says of the female deacons that they must be faithful in all things. There's no other way, there's no way to render that phrase to mean anything less than the superlative statement that it is. Faithfulness for the deacon and the deaconess is required not just in some things and not only in the things listed here, but in all things. Essentially, they are to be above reproach, living their lives faithfully to the Lord in such a way that no one can make a true claim of, and this is a key word, patterned sinful behavior that would disqualify them from serving the church in, in the honored role of deacon. So the, the woman deacon or the deaconess is to be trustworthy in every respect. And now there's more to say about female deacons in verse 12. Verse 12, Paul says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. So this is the same qualification that was given to elders about how the men manage their household. But now we have women who qualify for deaconship. So why does he mention as a qualification being a husband? Does this mean that deacons must only be men so that they can be husbands? Well, that's not what Paul's getting at. I mean, think about it like this. Even a single man who becomes a deacon, doesn't have a wife. So he's not a husband. So this qualification doesn't apply to him. And so the qualification for husband also wouldn't apply to a female deacon. Let me explain more. Even though the women can serve as deacons, there are still requirements for the men and the way that they 
fulfill their specific male role, such as how they manage their family, right? And by addressing how the deacon men manage their family, Paul is not automatically disqualifying women. When he says at the beginning of verse 12, let deacons each be, he's not saying every deacon must be a husband, but that for those who deacons that are husbands, they must properly fulfill their role in their family as head and spiritual leader of the home, managing their house well. The requirement here is for those who are husbands. Single men and women are not husbands, so it could read to those who are husbands, because contextually that's the meaning that Paul has behind this. Because the reality is, a majority of deacons will tend to be men who are husbands. And so, just as he addressed how a church leader manages their home in eldership, because it's such an important requirement, because how he manages his home will reveal how he'll lead and serve the church. So it is true with the deacon, um, you, you don't have the same evidence in a single man, and you don't have the same evidence in a woman or a wife that you have in the male husband. The male husband is the one who takes credit for and is held accountable to the management functionality and righteousness and holiness and sinfulness in his home. Whereas the single man has no family in which to reveal such fruit and the woman does not have that role where she's held accountable for the family as the husband does. So, and if she's a single woman, then both of those things qualify or apply to her. And so, this implies that the woman who serves as deacon must also, if she's a wife specifically, must fulfill her wifely duties according to Scripture, as Paul told us back in chapter 2, that they are to be quiet and submissive. Now, there's more than just quietness and submissiveness. I'm not going to get into the female roles right now, but you can still serve greatly in the church as a deaconess while still being quiet and submissive. And remember, deaconship is not the same as church leadership. Right? So deacon and elders are very distinct roles. The deacons are not church leaders, they are church servants. Now it is an elevated role, but it is not an authoritative role in the way that an eldership is an authoritative role, although deaconship can carry elements of authority within it. Um, but it is not similar, it is not equal, or really even similar to the elder role. In fact, they're quite distinct from one another, um, which we saw in Acts 6 that we talked about, I think, last week. So here at Grace Church, when we make female deacons here, we do so carefully, ensuring that, the, that their role as a deaconess is one in which they do not have to wield unbiblical authority that Scripture does not allow them. So we have to be careful in the ways in which we place women into certain roles in the church to protect them from their own sinful nature even if it's a great, godly, righteous woman, which she would be if we were going to make her deaconess, but being very aware that she has a sinful nature. And that sinful nature, according to the curse in Genesis 3, is to take a role that she is not allowed to take, which is, when, what the way God des describes it, is to desire her husband's role or to take on a role she's not, a, not created to take, which is an authoritative male role, a leadership role. And so... 
If you put a woman in a place and you don't give her restrictions and parameters that are biblical, that keep her role of servant to the church within the functionality of her female-created personhood, which is quiet and submissive and righteous and godly and good and sweet and kind, those things, by, by the church leadership navigating that, they can ensure that her flesh won't rise up because that's the curse won't rise up and cause her to try to take an authority that she doesn't, that she can't have. And so, again, we find elders having to create what? Restrictions, guidelines, clarity, right? And, 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 the, and those, that clarity and those restrictions can't be man-made restrictions. They have to be biblical restrictions. It only, it makes sense. That we put restrictions, like I said before, because God puts restrictions on things. But it doesn't make sense to not have restrictions because if you try to live your life in any way without restrictions, then there's no boundaries. And with no boundaries, you can just, you go wild. So there has to be clarity with restrictions. It doesn't work in the home. It doesn't work in the world. It doesn't work in, in the church. It doesn't work in the workplace. It just doesn't work that there's no restrictions. And so why does the world go, restrictions are good, guidelines are good, boundaries are good, boundaries in relationships are good, boundaries at work are good, boundaries in the church are good, boundary, or boundaries, 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 boundaries. And then you get to the church and it's like, no boundaries, no restrictions. You can do what we want because why? I don't know, God knows my heart. It's my motivation that matters, not what I actually do. When scripture doesn't tell us that it's your motivation that matters, that there is clarity about what you can and can't do. And so it's very important that we as elders lead women into deaconess role with clarity, communication of expectations, guidelines, restrictions, observation, judgment, and obviously prayer. Right? And communication with that woman and her role. And we would do the same with men. So, in doing so, we can dissent of division. We can, we can, we can keep sin out of areas uh, that it would otherwise creep in and create problems in the church. And instead, by having godly people fill godly roles, established by godly people who give godly, uh, godly restrictions and godly boundaries and biblical uh, parameters for those roles, it ensures the health of the church. And as Paul's whole point in chapter 1 was, it ensures not only that sound doctrine is taught, but that the sound doctrine that is taught by the elders is sound doctrine that is practiced by the deacons and deaconesses. Additionally, in the first century, when a woman served in this capacity, it was common that the woman served as a deacon with her husband, who was also a deacon. That was probably more common than just a single female deaconess. Okay? Not to say that didn't exist. Um, we have maybe evidence of that with Phoebe, but uh, in, I think, Romans 16... So the female deacons were typically part of a married couple team of deacons. So the wife wasn't always, always serving as a deaconess with her husband uh, or, or with, by herself while her husband's like at home, skipping church, eating potato chips, and watching sports on TV while she's at the church serving faith with that. It just wasn't as common as, well, probably is today. And so what 
typically happened instead is the husband had proven himself a godly man with a godly family and his wife, being the fruit of his biblical leadership, also served alongside him. So you can see how Paul has that in mind when he addresses the male deacon's role to manage the household welfare. If he does, his wife will likely also be equipped for a familiar or similar role in the church. And by doing it together, they alleviate the burden in their family and secure for their children a godly future to the benefit of the whole body, the whole church benefits. And essentially, the, the principle that Paul's getting at here is if this man is genuinely qualified for deacon, just like the elder, um, his wife, by character and by nature, would also be qualified for the same role. Now, unlike elder, the wife or a woman cannot fill that elder role. But with, in terms of deacons, if the husband is leading his family that well, his wife will also be equipped to fulfill a deaconess role with him. Now, that's not always the reality in the church, and that's totally fine. But this is why it takes time to evaluate the home and the family and the man to see, is his wife, she might not be there to become a deaconess, but is she growing? Is she serving? Is she loving? Is she giving? Is she dying to self? Is she sacrificial? Is she following Christ? Is she obedient? Does she love righteousness? Does she hate sin? Is she in the word? Is she in prayer? Does she, does she give up her time? Does she lead her children in a way that honors God? Does she speak with joy and patience and kindness? Does she bear the fruit of the Spirit? I could go on and on on what a godly woman looks like, and if she is moving in that direction, thumbs up. That's wonderful and glorious and good. But she could still maybe not be equipped to be a deaconess, and that would be fine. So I'm not saying that only men whose wives are equipped are men who are equipped, but how those men are leading their wives does show us how well they're equipped. And if they are doing that in a biblical manner for a long enough period of time, and for a lot of people, they just haven't had a long enough period of time to get their wife where they want to see their wife growing in Christ-likeness um, or, or get them to a place of maturity where they're equipped for deaconess role. Uh, but if they have a long enough time to, to, to manage their family as a godly man, biblically leading their family, their wives will eventually, if they're believers be equipped for that role. And that's not a guarantee, but that's the, like the premise that Paul is underlaying, that that's the kind of men who should lead, the kind of men who lead women into that same kind of character. And that benefits the entirety of the body. Verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Though Paul is addressing the product of being a qualified good deacon which is good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith, he's also saying that it is not only the product, but the cause of being a good deacon, right? Being in a good standing is also a requirement for deaconship. As Paul said that the deacon needs time to prove himself, and by proving himself, they get into good standing. And the means by which they prove themselves by continued faithfulness over time, Right? They get there by proving their faithfulness over time. Jesus said, follow me, follow me, follow me. Okay? And we, there's those texts, I think, I think it was last week I read, all of those conditions, all the conditional texts, not all of them, but a lot of the conditional texts in Scripture that relate to our obedience and our relationship with God. If you are my disciple, you will abide in my word. If you are truly my followers, you will do what I say. Why do you, call, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? 
We are, um, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. All those conditional statements reveal the significance and the importance of the continuation of faithfulness. In 1 John 3, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Gospel of John, Romans, many other texts um, teach us that that continued faithfulness through obedience is the cause for our confidence in our faith in Christ Jesus. So not only is a good standing and great confidence in assurance of our faith in Christ the product of being a good deacon, but it is also a requirement to become a deacon or a deaconess. And by continuing in faithfulness throughout deaconship, they ensure that this fruit in their lives is from Christ, is spirit-produced fruit. And then that fruit is poured out into the body, and the body themselves is filled with the fruit, enabling them to do the same, producing righteousness, holiness, and goodness in the church. Now, I want to I'm not going to, but I want to take time to, ex- to, to elaborate on this idea of continued faithfulness because of its importance, not only to the deacon role and not only to the elder role, but because of its importance to the church in general. And since contextually, Paul keeps bringing it up as an underlying foundational principle that sustains and supports the obedience of these people in these particular roles, I think it's important that we establish how important these conditional statements are and what they mean. I know we talked about it last week and dug into this continued faithfulness, but I want to show you, last week what I did is I explained with these uh, conditional statements the Bible's communication to us about the importance of obedience. You know, that our obedience is, reveals, as fruit reveals that our relationship with Jesus is genuine and therefore assures us of our salvation. And then we talked about, well, well then what, what does it mean then when a believer sins? And, and we teach here that, you know, your salvation is secured in Christ, uh, that the saints of God will persevere to the end and that you cannot lose your salvation. Um, but, and then the, well, we talked about that last week and kind of clarified those conditional statements and but I, what I want to do is take this idea of con, uh, continued faithfulness and what that looks like. So we talked about what that looks like last week. And I think what we'll do is next week, I'm going to talk about continued faithfulness. And, in this, and this time I'm going to use it as a comparison. And I'm going to compare the believer to the apostate. Apostasy is essentially... A false convert. So all apostates are false converts. But not all false, con- false converts are apostates. <laughs> I want to explain that and I want to dig into that more next week. But I think what we'll see is when we compare the genuine believer to the apostate, we will see as a conclusion of that comparison, the only difference is obedience. I should say, I should clarify that statement. The only evident difference is obedience. And I want to walk you through that biblically. I've got it written here in my notes, but I'm not going to start now. So I'm going to save it for next week. So next week, we're not going to get into verse 14, as we normally would just keep going in the text. I'm going to take a break and address the foundational principle that is laced throughout the first 13 verses of chapter 3. 
explain that so we have a nice solid grip on the importance of faithfulness to Christ and to church. And by doing so, hopefully we will see the glory of God in Jesus Christ in the gospel and then therefore convey the gospel to the world more clearly and more powerfully, not just for our own joy and satisfaction in God, but for the salvation of others. And so my hope today is that in seeing the importance of these, the clarity for these roles, we would understand that the word of God is our ultimate standard. You know that if you know me at all, if you know Brian at all, if you know any of the teaching that takes place in this church, um, you understand how important the word of God is to us, that we do what it says even when we don't like it. <laughs> and sometimes we don't like it right? But what God does in his sanctification is he turns it into joy and we become satisfied in doing things that we may not like, but we learn to love them because God loves obedience and we love God. And we cannot do this obedience. We cannot obey on our own. Ezekiel 36, 27, it is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who causes us to obey. That's what God says in Ezekiel in terms of the new covenant in Christ. And so we have this great confidence that as genuine believers, we have the power of the Spirit who's producing obedience in our lives. And like we talked about last week, even when obedience doesn't happen in the life of the believer, our response to our disobedience is to respond with obedience, which is repentance and change, hatred for sin, love for righteousness. And that ultimately is, is part of the problem in the church today, is that there is a vast number of people who go to church on Sunday mornings. Many of them are believers, many of them are not. But even, nevertheless, whether believer or not, there are a lot of uh, people who go to church on Sundays and they do not hate sin. And the reason they don't hate sin is because grace is their crutch instead of grace being their power. Grace is not a crutch. Grace is an engine. More than an engine. And not only, and grace not only covers your disobedience, grace empowers your obedience. And when we trust grace to only cover our disobedience, we don't develop a hatred for sin, and we continue in disobedience, like Paul talks about in Romans 6, 1 and 6, 15. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. What he's getting at is grace doesn't just cover your sin, and you can just keep sinning because you don't hate sin. Grace isn't, you're only getting half of the power of grace to, to forgive your sins. But you can't actually exist in half the power of grace because if God has forgiven your sins by grace, then his grace is not half applied to you. It is fully applied to you. And if his grace is fully applied to you, then he not only covers your sins, but he then empowers you in his grace to move you forward in righteousness and no longer disobedience, but in obedience to his word. And that's how God's grace works. So if God's grace is only half at work in you, it might be evidence that you don't actually have any of his grace. That's a tough pill to swallow. And I understand that there are a gazillion nuances to that. 
Like, well, what about all these hypothetical probabilities that we could, well, what about the Christian who, and what about, and how long do they have to, if they don't, not, you know, we could, like, and I don't even want to bring up any actual questions because then I'll feel like I have to answer them. But yeah, you could come up with a bunch of hypotheticals, but let's just get the foundational reality right first. If you are trusting grace only to cover your sins and it's not empowering you towards obedience, then it might not actually be God's grace. So as believers, our encouragement is this. When you sin, I completely, completely believe that we should just, oops, I sinned, and open our arms and fall backwards like in a trust fall and close our eyes and we just know that God's grace is going to catch us. Yep, I sinned, God. I fell today, but your grace covers my sin. My continued obedience, my works has nothing to do with that grace. And it is from that mentality that that grace then turns on to empower us to move forward in the very obedience that validates our salvation. And I want to explore that even more next week, and we will. For now, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. You're good to us in ways we just can't be good. We're, as Paul says in Romans 7, I just, I can't do good. Even when I want to do good in my flesh, I'm no good. But in Christ, you are good. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And so we turn to you, Lord, in terms of uh, deacons and deaconesses in the church, and we trust you to put the right people that you have called to your service in your church for the sake of your kingdom. That you would give your church leadership and your people clarity and discernment about who should be filling these roles and that you would produce in your church righteousness and goodness and obedience and faithfulness. And Lord, when we fail, that we would be broken and contrite, crushed under the weight of our sin, falling down, face down before you and saying, forgive me for my sin, knowing that you have forgiven us at the cross in Christ, that that sin was nailed to the cross, that that sin was taken to the grave, that that sin was buried and left dead in the grave. And Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and conquering death, and we have no need to pull that sin out of the grave. So we ask that your spirit would empower us toward righteousness. It's a journey, it's a struggle. Sanctification is complicated, God, and we, we don't want to overcomplicate it. We just want to follow Jesus. And if Jesus, Lord, if Jesus really is our greatest desire, then the idea of obedience doesn't feel like legalistic rule following. It feels like I'm following my best friend to the best place. Give us that kind of heart, Lord. And we just love you so much. We just want to follow you. And when we don't, it breaks our heart. So we lay before you terrified of the wrath that could come, but joyful and grateful that it won't come because of Jesus. Lord, raise up in your church people to serve your body. Deacons and deaconesses, equipped and qualified. And if there aren't any equipped and qualified, I pray that you would teach them, train them, raise them up, lead them to that place so that your body would be, as a whole, sanctified together and blameless before you in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.